Hello, you're listening to a bonus episode of the Humane podcast. My name is Polly Creed and I'm writer and co-producer of Humane, a new play running at the Pleasance Theatre in Islington this month until the 21st of November. It's supported by Arts Council England and the Cocaine Foundation. Humane tells the true story of Brightlingsea in Essex. In 1995, this tiny coastal Essex town blockaded itself for 10 months in protest against live animal exports, a trade they deemed cruel and repugnant. It deals with a number of interconnected timely issues such as animal rights, motherhood, activism, isolation and the lack of intersectionality within the environmental movement. It's about rural communities and the question of where our food comes from. Back in spring 2021, I sat down to talk to Louise Jameson, who starred as Bev in the audio drama version of the play, which was recorded in lockdown. Louise has been lighting up our screens and stages for 50 years. She's perhaps best known for playing Italian matriarch Rosie DeMarco in TV's EastEnders, and also starring in Doctor Who, Tenko and Bergerac. Louise is also an inveterate activist, championing a range of different issues, including prison reform, CND, and better representation of women on screen. She was even there at the Green and Common Peace Camp. There couldn't be a more perfect person, therefore, to speak to about the relationship between theatre and social change, acting and activism. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Louise, and thank you so much for speaking to us today. Well, thank you. I'm incredibly impressed with the script and your passion and you're just not giving up because of the pandemic, making it happen. I, you know, all credit to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been it's been a long road, but there have been massive kind of silver linings, actually, I think, in kind of learning about a new medium. I don't think we would ever have kind of done it as a radio play um, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. And it's been lovely. I get every week I kind of get the insights from um, the podcast platform and I can see people listening in different parts of the world, oh. which is just really lovely and something. Yeah, as, as I say before, you know, it would have really been kind of confined to just London, which is lovely being in the room with people, but yeah. actually to reach audiences in all sorts of different places and kind of people maybe that wouldn't otherwise be able to get to a theatre feels really wonderful and it's not necessarily the end of the road anyway I'm sure this will open doors for all kinds of other theatre film radio podcasts whatever I think it'll yeah I think you'll open a little floodgate I hope you do well we're hoping we're hoping to I mean I don't even want to jinx it but we're (laughs) hoping to um, open the stage play in sort of autumn 2021 at the Pleasance. So oh, we'll, we'll hope there are no kind of other variants or anything that kind of sidetracks that. Um, but yeah, that that should be really wonderful. Um, and it's nice to kind of um, dive into different forms and it allows to, allow. it's been kind of allowing us to tell the story in different ways, Yeah, um, which is really lovely. Um, yeah, so I'd love to kind of begin by asking you, so kind of as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you've really been involved with kind of both acting and activism. Um, and I wondered um, kind of for you, whether you've seen a big change over the last 50 years in the relationship between sort of social activism and um, and the arts and kind of what stands out as kind of the biggest shift in terms of that. Such an interesting question. Um when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I, you know, I went on every single march, you know, anti-Vietnam, apartheid, 
um, ban the bomb. I, you know, I was just there championing for change all the time. And then, uh, and then I became a mum. And then along came Thatcher's children, born in the eighties. My two boys included, with very little political engagement, despite the fact. You know, I have one black child, one white child. They have different fathers. Um, and and my white son is um, half South African and my black son is half West Indian. And they did engage with apartheid, you know, not buying the grapes and that um, going to the concert when he was finally freed. Um, but that's kind of as far as it, went they didn't feel a personal connection to all the other stuff that was going on and still does go on but I see this next generation now uh the millennials really engaging and I wonder if that isn't to do with the influence of the teachers of the time especially when it comes to pollution and uh, global warming. There seems to be an enormous uh, movement in and around that. And like yourself, responsible eating. I mean, that seems such a trite phrase for the enormity of what you're trying to bring to the surface here. You're trying to raise awareness of. Um, but responsible eating would, would change yeah. so much in the world. It's a good way of putting it as well, kind of responsible eating, because sometimes, you know, we talk about sustainability, we talk about kind of um, cruelty-free products and all of those things. But actually, the idea of being responsible and, you know, it being quite interconnected and thinking about, you know, the the, the all the different kind of facets of, of ethical eating and what that is. Um, so, I mean... I when we were talking about this this play, I keep kind of coming back and thinking, you know, to me it feels like it is also about it's very much focused in the story about the live exports, but for me it also feels like it's about climate. It feels like it's about sustainability. It's that question of where our food comes from, and also the injustice of that sort of being visible. Um, so that idea, I think that you know the the play is about. Um, this community who are it, the kind of it's brought to their attention because there's one road in one road out and the animals have to come past their windows come past their schools and there's no way of escaping it um, and I wonder if what you're saying about that shift as well is about visibility and the fact that you know these in, in as kind of all the kind of social crises as the climate crisis has worsened and become visible to us if it's become kind of impossible to ignore and of course, as the net has grown and the means of communication has grown and news that has been suppressed can't be suppressed the way it used to be, all that has made it more visible as well. And I do think, I mean, I think the overriding, the second half of your question, the overriding force of storytelling is that it's a safe place to debate dangerous issues. And you you can have a conversation which doesn't involve confrontation. It just involves education and the engaging of emotion. Yeah, I, th I think that's really interesting as well. And it feels like in the age of sort of Twitter, it, it's ever more important that we have, you know, places where you can have more nuanced, nuanced discussion. Um, so again, kind of going back to Humane, I think I was... The play really started out and it was about 
you know that you sort of celebrating the the voices and the stories that the um largely it was a mix of men and women but the women that were involved with these kind of organizing these protests but it became about so many issues and even just as I was interviewing people there were kind of all sorts of you know realizing that it was a really brilliant issue that people were there for, but there were all sorts of different kind of agendas, different people there for different reasons. Um, some of them brilliant and and kind of even if even if it wasn't about the animal cruelty, but there for kind of the community there um, to think about, um, you know, eating, eating more locally and all of those things. And then, but there were also all sorts of things and even kind of, you know, it was 1995, but Brexit, Brexit kind of lurked in the background of a lot of those things. And then, and one of the MPs that was most vocal in support of the protesters was Bernard Jenkin. Um, and at the time, it was very much he positioned that as about animal cruelty. But looking back on it, it's kind of interesting to consider if it was also about exports to Europe. So I loved being able to create something that was, you know, celebrating the story, really talking about the power of activism thinking about the planet, but also had all these kind of knotty and kind of complicated factors to it, which I think is reflective of kind of probably where we are at at the moment as well. Um, I I think through the whole uh, of the generations, you know, I'm old enough to be your grandma. So, you know, over the three uh, generations, what, what has changed most markedly is the gender politics, and that it isn't all being whipped up by uh, a particular group, you know, be it a, a male-based military group or a f- female-based domestic group. Now those edges are much more blurred and you see both sexes or whatever you identify as, you know, just being part and parcel of the movement regardless of gender, which I, is fantastic. That's really that's really interesting. It's something I probably have really taken for granted as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I think that's really fascinating. Um, and as I say, this in in Brightling it was a mix of men and women. It was mostly sort of pensioners because I think people say when I ask people, it's because it was the people that were able to be there physically every day. They had the time um to to be there. Um, but it is interesting to think about it as it still was kind of through the channel of that, you know, domestic world, I think. Um, how how do you think that has, do you think that's changed um, sort of outcomes and the way, the tools that activists use? Oh, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It's kind of, it, it, it has to be a hypothetical, it has to be speculation. Um, I think probably, yes, it has. I think women have felt more and more empowered um you know the whole um uh, female mutilation that genital mutilation that that's, that's become a you know very much in the fore now being championed by women is also got the backing of a lot of men which is you know fantastic back in the day that probably wouldn't have happened so yes I do think it because like it or lump it men are still in a position of power so the more the more all-embracing we can be with any kind of activism, of course, the more strands you're going to get of influence over the over the people that can make change. Yeah, absolutely, and the idea of allyship as well. Yes, um, yes. is kind of yeah, is so so powerful. Um, in terms of the pandemic, do you think that's? I know we were kind of just talking before we started recording about kind of the world of doing Zoom interviews and self tapes <laughs> and everything in lockdown. Do you think, in terms of, I guess, both the arts and also activism is a, a huge question? 
but do you do you have a sense of kind of where things are moving to i'm not sure they'll move i think they'll expand i don't think you'll ever lose the again we were saying this before the ancient art of storytelling of you know sitting by your child's sleepy face and reading them a story is the beginning of it all really or sitting around the campfire telling stories or people on a stage talk to a larger audience and so it grows and grows and grows so I think all we have done is added medium and we've added I think which is fantastic the ability for somebody with relatively little experience can now make a movie um so when you're not heard when the powers that be don't come to you with their thousands of pounds going let me make this movie for you you can go right well, we'll just do it ourselves then albeit on a budget but we can do it yeah and I guess there's a parallel there with activism as well is that that thing of like now you don't have to be a lobby group with you know I, I think it's a lot easier to do things just by yourself and yeah. I think even you know I'm 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 pretty pretty young but even I can see the people that are kind of at school now so teenagers who are maybe 10 years younger than me they it feels like they are really just doing things so you know I'd always kind of wait for a teacher or something to organize something or to be asked and it feels like they're just building making it themselves and I think that's what we're seeing in the arts as well and other industries but I think particularly in those two areas it's kind of really um being brought to the surface that ability to kind of DIY it yes Yes, if you're not heard, then you find a voice somewhere. There's so many outlets. Uh, just quickly kind of um, going back a bit to Humane. Yes, um, yes. Was this a story that you were familiar with? Do you remember kind of seeing the, the story of Brightness on the news? I'm, I'm ashamed to say it was new to me. Or if I did know it, I, you know, lost it in the mists of time. Um but I mean, what a fantastic story. And how, how did you how did you get hold of it in the first place? So it, I grew up really close to Brighton and in Essex and um, my friends, so it all kind of began when I was sort of, as we're talking about, sort of teenagers at school. Uh, at school, my best friend, Daisy, um, Daisy Blower, who's now the most fantastic set designer, she um, came to school and she was talking about her granny, Betty, who'd been involved in these protests. And she'd been saying, oh, I really want to do a verbatim project around it. Um, and we kind of, had a few moments where we sort of I think Daisy shakily went and went to kind of around the hairdressers and things in Brightling scene recorded it on her sort of Motorola phone um and then we kind of lost lost sight of it as as sort of teenage teenagers do and then a few years later I um was I saw a call out for plays about Bright um about Essex and I thought oh I actually, I, I can think of a really brilliant story and I've really mm. forgotten about it. And then it kind of came flashing back and sort of I started doing more research and realised there was so much there. And I spoke to Daisy and said, oh, Daisy, do you want to do, should we, um, should we kind of resurrect the, the Brightling Sea project? And she said, well, I'm, I'm not a writer, I'm a designer. So if you write it, then I'll design it. So she's going to be designing the stage play. Oh, fantastic. But it's quite nice because it kind of comes, yeah, like it feels like it's kind of come from that sort of community in a way. Um, And so all the audio dramas are dedicated to the memory of her, her grandma, Betty, um, who, yeah, he was there there in Brightling Street at the time. 
Um, so, and it's nice for me doing, you know, my family aren't originally from Essex, but I really, the, the plays really helped me kind of connect to um, that community that I kind of grew up in mm. um, and, and kind of, you know, especially we were talking about sort of stereotypes and things. I think often, you know, the idea of Essex girls and something. I'm Essex, probably, I'm an Essex girl. Yeah, it's it's really like I, I kind of really sort of re- probably rejected it at points and was really, yeah, yeah. And, but actually really realizing the kind of the 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 grit and the the the, the sort of activism that was happening there. Um, how what, what do you think about the sort of? Have you struggled with the stereotype of the Essex girl? No, I've just kind of I've embraced it. Really, I'm from Essex, in it. You know, it's just as kind of I slightly send it up myself. But my grandfather was the self-made man from the East End that moved out to you know Epping Forest Way. It's a very typical story. My mum was born within the sound of Bow Bells, which makes her a true Cockney. And then we, but then we, they made a conscious decision to I put this in quotes jump class and I'm taught how to lay the table properly and go to elocution classes and you know they made a real determined effort they voted Tory they were you know so I think I probably slightly broke their hearts when I emerged with all these left-wing politics having had the you know the privileged private education to then come out and say everybody should should be state educated you know these, yeah these things yeah. I believe in I could yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's all kind of connected isn't it but yeah. I wonder as well you know as I was researching it there was that story that you talk about people kind of um cockney people moving out to sort of places like Brighton and Colchester um you know, and and a lot of that was to do, to do with all sorts of things, kind of people looking for more space, but also gentrification, kind of what was happening with the, I guess, and you know, from the fifties through to the kind of eighties in the East End as well. Um, and I think I I wonder if there's something as well about you know I keep coming back to why did this happen in Brightlingsea, and I wonder if there's something about that kind of, you know, a, a sense of sort of trade unions and kind of collective action that maybe informed the protests in, in Brightlingsea? I think, yeah, I think you're probably right. I, I mean, you know, far, you've done far more research on it than I have, obviously, but I think women found a voice during the two world wars in a way that they never had before and an idea of self-worth and and, and, and the ability to speak out. And as you say, you know, this pensioner woman that you're championing that you're dedicating the piece to um probably wouldn't have had that voice had it not been for the two world wars and the and the and the moving out you know all those adverts that said um make the bullets plow the land do you know get yourself out there take on the man's work they tried to reverse it at the end of the war with your man needs you back in the home, get back into And a lot of women just went, no, I've had a taste of what it's like to be out there with a career now. And I think that was the beginning of feminism, even though it wasn't really championed until the, you know, um, late 70s in this country. But, you know, there she was. Betty, did you say her name was? Yeah, Betty yeah. Blower. Betty Blower, there she was. Yeah. Blowing, blowing her trumpet. Good for her. Yeah, exactly. And there were so many, I mean, there was an amazing story of this woman, Tilly Merritt as well, who was, I think, 76 at the time. And she was squirting the police with her garden hose. And, 
um, you know, just just and I think that's also why I was really attracted to it is, you know, we hear all these stories about activism with sort of young people. And at the moment as well, you know, amazingly, people like Greta Thunberg and things oh, over yeah. there. But I hadn't kind of really heard as many stories about older, older women, especially um, sort of. Uh, taking things into their own hands in this way and I'm, I know there are so many stories like this but I feel like the media traditionally hasn't sort of picked up on on those they haven't been um given space um and I I kind of just love that and I love the intergenerational aspect of it um and, yes. and it, yeah and, and yeah. I mean, the protests were really led by a woman called Maria Wilby, and but her mum was um, and and kind of still is um, kind of a huge figure of compassion and world farming. And it was sort of the intergenerational knowledge and and kind of that really, I, I suppose that was also one of the catalysts for it. And, and the fact that the, this and her sister Francesca as well, the, the kind of the three of them were huge sort of leaders of it. Um, so was this all? So this was all female led then. Yeah, I mean, it pre- it pretty much there were quite a, there was a, a you know a, a group of men that were very involved. Um, as I say again, mostly sort of um, pen- pensioners, but it was really I think because of the demographics as well of um, of of kind of the the pensioners that were in Brightly, so it was lots of women. And I also think, as you were saying, I think it was sort of it was it was um seen through quite a domestic lens and a lot of the people when I was interviewing people they kept coming back to this issue of the schools the two schools and the fact that the lorries passed by the schools and that was sort of I think there were all sorts of reasons why people opposed it but that was the most common reason that people gave and I thought that was really interesting that it was um yeah and 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 maybe as well for people women when they're you know, protesting there's often a need to kind of talk about it in terms of children and motherhood and and all so of those do you, things do you think if they were even if they had if there had been another road do you think that there wouldn't have been these protests I don't know it's hard to imagine kind of the, the difference in the geography I think I think just the fact that they yeah, maybe if I don't know. I, I think one of the things is people being able to see it so clearly yeah, and yeah, like it yeah. being at eye level. I mean, even I remember well and, and it still has an impact, but I think you used to see a lot more of it of kind of lorries or motorways with you see the the animals kind of looking out of Little the sky. noses poking out though. Yeah, and I mean I turned vegetarian when I was probably I was a very headstrong child, probably nine or ten. And I wow. think seeing animals like that. That was one of the, and I, I, I kind of grew up in the countryside, so it was kind of seeing the lambs in the fields, seeing that um, made it feel, it felt very visible to me. Um, but this is, it, yeah, and it's really interesting, the kind of range of different perspectives and attitudes, and lots of people kind of said, you know, I still ate meat, and I saw my family, and my family were all kind of from the country, or had a background in farming. It's a very, you know, it's, it's quite close to sort of Suffolk, and it's quite a kind of, one of the main economies there is agriculture you know it's fishing and um agriculture so it's not you know I think people that you know would be aware of what the kind of farming system was but there was something so personal about it being in their town um and I I, I think there were real yeah real mix of motivations but I think the, the main thing was seeing it at such a kind of close um level Mm. Um, and feeling somehow responsible for it that that was the place where these animals were being sent off mm. um and i think as well the those these animals who were um 
the for the animals that were being exported by Richard Otley, I think had travelled quite a long way as well. So I think they were in a particularly bad condition. Is the impression I get. Mm. Um, so I think I think that was also kind of really brought it home to people. Um, and I, I think around that time there'd been kind of a, other animal export protests as well. I know there were protests in Shoreham, and then there was some kind of because they were being exported out to Belgium. And someone told me as well that there was kind of a the solidarity there was kind of a connection with people at the port in Belgium as well um so it's a really but it it is kind of incredible it's kind of strange for some you know that it just happened at that moment um as well um but it's um and and as you say the mid-90s the you know obviously the um kind of campaigns around apartheid and things um kind of uh, sort of and then, then you have the poll tax protests they're the kind of the ones that seem to stick out that kind of more you know oh, poll tax, yeah. before 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 those protests but it is an era a kind of era which feels maybe a, less political um yes I mean I, I certainly after children arrived I was I you know I was much more signing uh, things than marching I have to say just for the logistical you know time of it I think the last the last big protest I went on was Greenham Common which is you know long long time ago yes um and that's that must have been incredible to be there um it was amazing it was amazing that that the day we there was one day we circled uh, the men ran the creche they didn't have anything to do with the actual protesting and we we circled the entire camp and we hung things on the fence that meant something to us. And at the end of the day, there were these ribbons and photographs and dummies and teddy bears and, and shawls and things that you didn't know what they meant. But there was this just kind of wall of, of really important things against this backdrop of aggression. Wow, that's that's beautiful, and and as you say, that idea of kind of storytelling as well being so powerful that there yeah. will be stories um, on the fence. It's the anniversary this September, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw that. I saw that they're doing a kind of walk, and I was thinking I might take part um, to to mem- kind of memorialise it. Um, that would be wonderful. Uh, do you think that that Greenham changed? a lot in terms of female activism in the UK do you think yes I do I do I think it came on the crest of the feminist wave you know I think that was what 83 we took 81 it started something like that um yeah I do I think it had a bigger big effect but but it was happening now you see 1976 was the equal rights bill so from there on in, we had law on our side a lot of the time, you know, to get a mortgage even. You couldn't get a mortgage before 1976. As a single female actor, they just laughed at me. It's, it's, it's kind of unbelievable for me. Yeah. I just can't, I can't imagine it. And I think that's that's something that I'm, yeah, I was really interested in the story as well, of honouring the work of all the the women and, and sort of the feminist movement that came before you know the current wave um and I think that I I think it'd be great to see more of that happening of people reading you know reading up more and and kind of learning as well well thank you so much for speaking to me today and and just kind of that the the being able to see everything with that kind of clarity and and all the kind of experience that you have 
both the arts and activism um, and for all your inspiring work with everything. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, here's to the next project. Absolutely. <laughs> You've been listening to an episode of the Humane Podcast, produced by True Name Productions and John Ainsworth. Original music by Ting Ying Dong. <laughs>